I think I started noticing it mid-08, but obviously by the end of 08, when the bailout, I mean, I opened my own company October 1, 2008. I was in Washington, D.C. on my kids' field trip, coming back in to my new office that I opened, that we built. We started in 07, was ready. We're moving in October 108. And I remember being in D.C., watching people walk around, don't bail out the government. You know, it was all those protesters. And I remember going, ooh, boy. I really picked a good time to open an office. When you owe a bank a couple million bucks, they call that foreclosure. But when you owe a bank, depending on the size of the bank, maybe one of these regional banks, 10 million bucks, all of a sudden, hey, Brad, let's figure out how we're gonna work this. Yes, you're a partner. So it's almost like you're a partner. You're more, you're, you're better off owing them more. It would have been easier, honestly. I could have come out a lot quicker if I had just bankrupted, okay? And played that game. But I did sign the note. I remember going to him like maybe in 10 or 11 and like, John, is this the new normal? I mean, is this ever gonna change? And he looked at me, he goes, are people still having sex? And I go, I think so. He goes, well, they're gonna have babies and they're gonna have to have a place to live. I mean, we had to take it down to the most common denominator to go, it is gonna come back. Yeah. Because we gotta have houses for people. I'm like, man, save cash, get, have cash, have cash have cash, because I'm gonna tell you something. When times are tough, the bank don't care about how much you're worth. They care about one item, one line on your financial statement, one, cash. The real estate world is changing. Opportunity is everywhere. It has never been so easy to connect, share, and bring people together. We're learning from others and finding the very best in ourselves. Challenging our beliefs, overcoming our fears, transforming ourselves so we can transform our business. This is Investor Creator. This is Investor Creator. I'm Brad Smotherman, and today I'm joined with John Jones. John is a 28-year veteran in the real estate business and has done everything in the investing space, including land development, new construction, rentals, commercial investment. And John is also owner of John Jones Real Estate, a boutique brokerage that closed over $185 million in sales in 2020. That sounds like a lot of houses. John is an avid football fan and a very involved family man as well, which we can appreciate. John, welcome to Investor Creator. Thanks, Brad. Enjoy. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So first question is really about the market because you've been in mm -hmm. this a long time. You've seen market cycles and you have mm -hmm. a really in-depth knowledge in terms of really watching statistics, which I've always enjoyed sure. listening to what you have to say. Right. What do you think about the market right now? How are you feeling about everything? Scared. And the reasons whenever... I think it's Warren Buffett that said it. When people get greedy, he gets fearful. And when 
he, you know, when people get fearful, he gets greedy. Yeah. And I think, you know, we touched on it before this, going back to 08, I really didn't look at trends that much. And, and after going through that experience of the Great Recession, I said, I, I went back and looked and to see if there was there any signs here. And there was. Locally in Middle Tennessee, in 06, everything was great. In 07, everything appeared to be great. We, in my office, we had about the same numbers. It felt similar. But when I went back and looked at the numbers after things went south, I, I noticed there was a trend in 07 where everything was about 10% off. It started gradually, you know, over prior year. Hmm. And, uh, but this one's different. It's an inventory problem, which is pushing prices sky high. And then you have the COVID factor. You got the supply chain factor, which has even increased that. But rates have stayed low, which I think has allowed kind of this perfect storm for this kind of to happen. So whenever things get like too crazy one way or the other, I'm not going to say I'm scared, but I'm I'm definitely a little bit fearful and co- not fearful, concerned. Yeah. And and then of course, as you know, if the market's real good for one party, in this case, the seller, then it's not that great for the buyer. But when things reverse, there's always opportunities in a market. So you did, but you just got to know the market you're playing in. And um, I kind of learned that the hard way, the recession. But um, right now, the best I can tell, this is the first time I've ever seen this type of market in my close to 30 years. And it comes back to the basic thing that we didn't build enough houses in this country in the past decade, 2010 to 2019. The statistics I've seen when you when you look at single family private housing and also rental housing, I think we built five million in that decade. Every prior decade, all the way back to the 50s in America, we built over 20 million. Wow. So we have a housing shortage just for general population growth. And so that's what's causing the problems. And of course, the pundits say, well, we just got to build more houses and all work out. But pundits aren't business people. And just putting, getting something online in our area, like if I go out and find a piece of land today to develop, you and I go out and we find the perfect piece of land. I mean, it's a good two years probably before we have a house ready. And that's if everything goes really yeah, pretty smooth, yeah, you know, yeah. optimistic. Um, yeah, so it's it's just there's a big lag time. So I'm concerned because these houses have just gotten so high, and we kind of know what the wages are in our area. And when rates go up, there you know there needs to, honestly there needs to be a little. Cor- I don't have a I don't have a problem with the correction. You know, a lot of people, oh gosh, we're having a correction. Corrections are healthy. You got to balance the market. I think right now I looked yesterday. Every price point in our market, except for the highest price point, is a month or under supply absorption rate, which is crazy. If I had my druthers, they say a balanced market's about a four-month supply. I'd love just a good old four-month supply. That's funny. <laughs> Things never go up. Never, yeah. just, hey, just nice and healthy, yeah. you know? Yeah. So that, I, I don't know. It's, it's weird. That makes sense. There was something that you said. So back when I started in real estate in 2005, this guy was was already known back then. Mm-hmm. And you would do your Tuesday morning coffee episodes. Yep. 
and talk about the market and what you're seeing. And this was in, I think, 2010, maybe 2009, 2010. And I remember one time that John said, this is absorption rate. Here's how many months supply. Here's how we're trending. And really went down to, to, to basic stat to come up with, like, how do we infer from this data? And I always really enjoyed that because mm-hmm. my background was accounting. Sure. You know, so the data was impactful for me. Yeah. And I remember w- one thing that you said, you said, tremendous opportunity for buyers right now. Yeah. Tremendous opportunity for buyers. And that was the beginning of me really not even beginning to care about what the market is. Mm-hmm. Because like in my business right now, we've got 53 houses in process mm-hmm. right now between owner finance houses that we have, houses that are being rehabbed, uh, you know, right. just, just going right. on. And the concern, as I'm sure that you hear it from other people, is, gosh, we may have a correction. We may have you know, sure. all of this happen. I don't really care as long as I know kind of what direction we're going. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because if it's really, we're always caught between two markets anyway. Sure. So there's a market to buy and a market to sell. Mm-hmm. So if right now we're in a really tough market to buy and it's really easy to sell, mm-hmm. I'm always caught between two markets anyway. Sure. So I don't really care kind right. of what we're into. So. Uh, I appreciate that. When you were looking at the data of the 08 crisis mm-hmm. and you went back to look at it, what were you looking for and what did you find there? I was looking for, did we have any signs this was coming? And so I started going back to 07 and comparing it to, well, really, I even went further back. And, and in our local market, and remember, real estate's local. Right. Now, we see national numbers every day and they can give you a feel for things. But real estate really is local. Even during the Great Recession, there was pockets of this country that was a, a seller's market. I think in the North Dakotas where they were doing a lot of oil fracking and stuff, I, I was up there pheasant hunting, and they said even during those years, they because of the weather, they literally were building houses 24 hours. They had big lights. Wow. And yeah. because So, you know, North Dakota wasn't having, or Bismarck or wherever, wasn't having the same problems that we were having, but... So I looked at the local market and I went back and I think even all the way back to like 93 or four and year over year, we kept having increases. We were selling more homes than we did the year before in our market. Mm-hmm. Then that stopped in 07. It was the first time there was a, ooh, not as good as last January. So just not units sold. Yeah, units sold. And the absorption started getting a little a little more, you know, and I didn't notice it because we weren't feeling it. And it was only, I think, about 10%. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time it had taken a, a different direction. It had been this way for literally 15 years, which is weird. I think it goes back to like early 2000s. We should have had, you know, you're supposed to have a correction about seven, eight years. You know, it's healthy. Banker told me one time that, you know, they have a seven-year memory. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? I, I believe a, that. I was a young kid, you know, he goes, well, as bankers, we start offering money to everybody. Times are good. Then we get our we get our little spanking when things go bad. Then we get real conservative again. Yeah. And then we forget what happened seven years ago and we do it all over. But in the early 2000s, it was kind of the perfect storm. Housing was ready to be corrected. And there was a few things that happened. The baby boomers got to their most, the biggest group that we had, got to their like, peak buying power to buy that next big home or that second home. So we had a great demographic there ready to do some things. We also had, uh, they were trying to keep the economy going. So they, that's when the Fed started cutting rates. So they kind of picked real estate as their way to keep it going. But the one thing that I don't think any of us could predict, because it never happened before, in the movie The Big Short, 
or the book, The Big Short by Michael Lewis and the movie, excellent, really tells you, shows you this. Wall Street got into the mortgage business. Mm. They'd never been in it. And they did mortgage-backed securities. And they couldn't find enough mortgages. So therefore, you know, if you could fog a mirror, you could get a loan. And so all that created this craziness that uh, that we experienced. People buying homes that shouldn't have been buying homes. People buying second, third homes. People were trying to flip homes. You know, just crazy stuff. And um, so when I went back and looked, I was looking for just trends. And the trend was in 07, hmm, this is going the other direction. And then, then one day we just hear on the news, Countrywide's laid off all these people. You know, we're like, whoa. What's going on? Then we started hearing default numbers and arms that were maturing and all this stuff. In that movie, The Big Short, we all sit there and go, even Wall Street, even the industry didn't get it. There was a few people as The Big Short, very few people. Right. I mean, the, the but the people in that movie, the, these few guys that were short in the market, the big places like Goldman Sachs, they were like laughing at them, you know? So even these guys that are really smart, didn't understand that these I guess they're called like tranches. I can't, what are they called? Like these mortgage-backed securities that they package together. I think they call them tranches or something like that, that they had all this crap in them. Yeah. But they were still getting A ratings. Yeah, so Moody really helped out. With yeah, all yeah. And who pays Moody? The, you know, right, and then right. you figure all that out. But, you know, that's when I saw something for the first time. And and the thing was, and you, you said it just a second ago, and I heard that same thing one time I was, you know, you're searching for answers during that time. Like, what the heck? We had been doing business one way so long that I had to hear somebody say, look, the market's changed. Yeah. Just figure out how to play in this market. And as a brokerage company, mainly that's what I do. I do development. I do rentals. But my number one, you know, that pays the bills is is buying, you know, is helping people uh, buy and sell real estate and brokering the deal. So where up until that time, we had only... I mean, I think in 06, I looked, 80% of my business was like new construction, either listings or helping, you know, boom. It was non-existent in 08. It just stopped. 08, 13, there was no new construction. I mean, very little. Yeah. Maybe 10%. So I said, oh, I got to change my, okay, so what's the market giving me? Well, a third of every sale that was going through our market at that point was uh, a short sale. Yeah. So I said, hmm, we got to figure out how to do short sales. Boy, it'd be really good if we could get some REO business. So we sent packages to every REO company, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD. I think we had, we sent like 75 packages telling them we're the greatest thing since sliced bread, how we can help them. We got this team, blah, blah, blah. We only had one hit, but it was probably the best one could hit. It was, it was one of HUD subcontractors, Penco. And so we got a HUD contract, which was incredible. Cause I mean, some years that was a hundred to 150 listings. They were, now it wasn't fun. It was hard. It wasn't a lot of money, but it kept us going. Yeah. Then the other thing we figured out, okay, short sales, you know, learned how to do those. Not fun. Right. Oh, Takes yeah. forever. Right. It's the hard, it's, anyway, then we said, okay, man, this is good for buyers. Who do I know that hasn't been affected by this recession? And the list was short. <laughs> they need to be buying rental property. They need to get in the rental game. So I called any of my clients, any of my friends that I thought, you know what? I remember one guy in particular who had a very good kind of executive job with, with Assurian, the phone mm-hmm. company. And he wasn't affected. He was making great money, uh, wanted to invest. And he bought like seven or eight homes that year or in the two-year period. 
all those homes now are more than doubled and they're paid off. And so when I see that guy, I mean, he comes up and almost, you know, kisses you a me. hug. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I found other people like that. Hey, you need to buy rental property. So we just had to get into that. Here's what the market's giving you. We, you and I don't make the market, unfortunately. We could be great if we could make the kind market. Kind of figure that out. Yeah. yeah. But we just have to play within its parameters. So I think the key is just figure out what the market's doing. And the only way you're going to do that is to watch it. But there's always opportunities in every market. And yeah. somebody told me that at a seminar, basically the way I just said it to you. And I was like, okay, I'm going to be okay. Yeah. I'm going to be okay. But before that, I was thinking, because this is the only way I'd done business. Oh my God, we're over. This is. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah. What are we going to do here? You know, but you don't see any kind of an 08 scenario right now in the market that you can I see. I don't. Well, I, there's too much demand. Yeah. There's still people that need homes. There's, there's more buyers than there are sellers. And this is the only market I've ever seen where rents and appreciation of houses are going up simultaneous. Usually it's an inverse relationship. Right. If people are buying homes, rents kind of stabilize or even come down a little bit. If people, even in 08 through 13, where people were having to go rent and just get it, you know, rents kind of went up a little bit, you know, because everybody's losing their home. And this is the first time I've seen this, which the only thing that could mean is we just don't have enough homes in this country for people. That makes sense. So let's take it back prior to real estate. Mm -hmm. um, let's say I was, I was talking with some of your friends from high school. Right. What would they say about you? How would they describe you? Hmm. That's a good question. I think uh, outgoing, I think a lot of people would have pegged me to probably be in some type of sales or something. Played athletics, had fun, uh, didn't take, took school serious enough. Like I was conscious that I at least wanted a 3-0, mm -hmm. but I didn't really apply myself the way I wish I had. Uh, even in college, um, my first two years in college, I followed the same pattern I had in high school and I struggled a little bit, but I was in football in college. So that kept me grounded and kept me disciplined enough to do what I had to do to stay eligible. And then a light bulb went off, I guess my junior year that, you know what, I better get prepared for life and I better take this thing seriously. And I think getting into your major or my major helped me. It was more classes that, um, that, that I found interesting and I really applied myself. And then I was like, wow, I'm, I'm not dumb. You know, I'm doing good in these classes and I'm, I'm applying myself. And, um, I think what, what kind of took me to sales was one summer, uh, I sold, um, the, you've probably heard of the old Southwestern book company. They're actually out of Nashville yeah. and they send kids to these cities and just, <laughs> I mean, you could be in, you know, Texarkana where you don't know a soul. And they sell books door to door, educational books. Well, they had a division they started back in the 80s, early 90s called the Winning Edge. And they went to the colleges to recruit athletes because they wanted it was a it was a Halon fire extinguisher, which got outlawed, by the way, because Halon messes with ozone, I guess. But it's an odorless gas that puts out fire. So it doesn't cause mess. It's like a fire extinguisher, but it doesn't cause mess and powder and all that. And it kind of tracks the fire. So really good for like grease fires, great for car fires, you know, because they don't make it worse and there's not a cleanup. So they taught us this presentation, learned, uh, understood. It uh, opened my belief system and my eyes to uh, scripts. Right. They trained yeah. your butt really good. 
you know, and we had this little presentation where we started a fire and a ashtray and you'd shoot a little halon like in this little t- in a little shot glass and you'd have the fire going here and you would just kind of turn the shot glass. Fire would go out. Wow. Yeah, it was really cool. And uh, so I just went to my hometown and I just followed their script and I really did well doing that. And I think that's when I said, hmm, maybe I want to do sales one day. Didn't really know what that looked like. Didn't and know. you were in college at this time. I was in college. Okay. It was like my second, third year in college. But back then, in our hometown, there's a big insurance company. State Farm has a regional office. And back then, and this is probably 90, you were told, go apply at State Farm. Because mm-hmm. it was kind of the, it was probably one of the few, like, white-collar jobs we had here. Right. And it was a really good employer. And I went and applied because that's what I was told you should do because it's a good job. So I did that and I got a job as a claims adjuster in Chattanooga and I was in a five by five cubicle all day long. How did you enjoy that? I was like a caged animal. There were certain aspects of it that were invaluable because they put me in bodily injury, which meant that I had to take all the claims where one of our insured hit someone who had some type of injury. And in, Probably 50% of those cases, they got an attorney. So I was dealing with the attorneys. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most of them were ambulance chasers, okay? So nine times out of ten, I never even talked to an attorney. I was talking to some paralegal. Uh, but it really, and I, was, I had a lot of fear. You know, I was 22 years old. Man, I got to write letters to attorneys. But it really gave me a boldness after I was able to do it. And like, okay, I can do this. It really helped me when I decided to go into sales because it made me uh, attuned or understand, you know, I can talk to older people. I can talk to professional people and get things worked out. So it was really kind of getting out of your comfort zone moment that helped me. But as far as the job itself, I remember this is 1990. My salary was 23.8. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is awesome. You know, and I remember after my check, I get two checks a month. And one check, I remember looking at the guy beside me and going, who in the hell's FICA? You know, why are they taking my money? Yeah, yeah. He goes, that's Uncle Sam. And I said, wow. And um, I think I had like 850, 880 bucks. And that one check paid my my rent and my car. Okay. And so the other check was basically my disposable income to buy food, gas, gym, and just anything I wanted to do, which wasn't a lot of money, even in 1990. Right. And I was like, man, if I'm going to bolt and make a move, I need to do it before I have obligations and yeah. family. Now, State Farm's a great company. And they they would, you know, I could have gotten up to make good, good money, you know, decent living or whatever. But my goal was to become a State Farm agent. And I could tell that that wasn't a sure thing. You didn't know. So I said, man, if I'm going to make a move, I need to do it now. And my uncle owned a real estate company here in Murfreesboro. And I said, I'll go try that. So, and that's Howard. Howard Wall. Yeah. Who was so, one of my mentors. Yeah. So I don't know if I've, if I've told you this. I, I met Beth not long ago, which is Howard's daughter. Right. And the reason that I, I do real estate today is because of Howard. I got to tell him this maybe a year and a half ago. I'd never met him. I met him up on the square and I was with Tony. Yeah. And, um, but I went to Black Fox Elementary, mm-hmm. kindergarten through sixth grade. And he developed that subdivision, Kingsington. Kingsington, right. Right, yeah, right behind it. But I, I didn't know that. Right. And so, but all the time on the school sign, it would say, thank you, Howard and Sally Wall for your donation. Yeah. 
four or five times a year. Because they kind of sponsored that school. Yeah. 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 And so, I, and, you know, my family was in farming. And, right. And literally, we had crop where uh, it wasn't irrigated. So, right. I mean, I remember my grandparents effectively praying for rain in July sure. and August. You right. Because the corn or soybean may right. do well or not based on those mm-hmm. months. And I was thinking, like, here we are. We're effectively praying for rain. Sure. And here Howard is, whoever that is, and he's giving money to these kids that he doesn't right. even know. And that, that's that's interesting that that hadn't. Well, it's it doesn't surprise me, but it's interesting the things we see as kids that kind of, yeah. yeah. Wow, yeah. I see that guy. He looks successful. Maybe I need to get curious about this. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. So at at a certain point, you went to Howard. It yeah. sounds like and said, "What do you think about this?" Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. So Howard, if you've ever been around Howard, he is one of the most charismatic worker room, make people feel good type guys you'll ever meet. And I was just blown away by the way he could make anybody feel well. He always remembered names. Mm-hmm. But anyway, as a kid, like you go to Christmas, okay? So I'm in high school and he would come up to me and give me a $100 bill. And he'd go, hey, come work for me one day. You're going to be the best. <laughs> and 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 I'd be like, he really thinks I'm going to be good. Yeah. You know, he made me feel special. Well, so that was naturally the place I turned when I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. What I did not realize, Howard was always recruiting. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I saw him do that to people after I started. I was like, damn, I thought I was special. <laughs> but that tells you a lot about the guy. He was always looking for talent. And we had a lot of agents come through there, just like you do today, where, you know, they give it a shot. It wouldn't work out. But the thing that Howard did for me, which was in the early 90s, nobody was doing this around here. He literally trained personally every agent that came on his company for a good 90 days. He took you through financing, which was incredible, marketing, everything, and like one-on-one training. And, buddy, he he had – um he made you very accountable. Like you did not want to go into that training session if you had not done the workbook. And you got to remember, I was like 23 or 24, never owned a home, had a baby face, was very fearful of how am I going to sell homes to these people? You know, I've never done this. They're going to know I'm young. And back then, real estate's become kind of a young person's game. Back then, the average age was 51, mm-hmm. the realtors. It was your stereotypical blonde women that drove Cadillac type, you know what I mean? It was just an older business. And he told me, he looked at me, he said, listen, he goes, when we get done training, you are going to know more about real estate than 95% of the people. And I don't know if he just pulled that number out of the air. 95% of the people you will come in contact with. And by him telling me that, it gave me this, I felt like a kind of a badge or shield, like, okay, I'm going to be good. And the training was invaluable. Most agencies at that time would basically come on in here, maybe go through a day of something. Here's your big brother, Brad, your mentor. Here's a desk. Here's a phone. Go get them, kid. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think if I had gotten that, I don't know that I would have made it. Because even with all that training, my first year, I remember it took me four to five months before I cashed my first check. And I remember thinking that first six months, I just don't know. 
And so how, how did you deal with that emotionally? I mean, you have bills, you're having, you went Well, I was lucky. I didn't have many obligations. Yeah. I literally moved back in with my mom for okay. a few months. And I just remember, I just got to keep doing this. I wasn't, that's why I always tell people that come to me, especially if they have a family, look, do you have six months saved up? Because if you don't, this business gets, it gets hard and you might not be able to see it through. Yeah. There's fast starters or slow starters. I think I was kind of a medium starter, but so forth. But I remember I did like 20, I started in March and I think I did about 20 deals that year. Well, that's a hell of a first year. That is a good first year. But I promise you, most of those came after that. And it made me understand you have to get a pipeline going. You know, it just takes time. But most of those deals, basically almost all of them came in that last six months. And most every one of them was first-time homebuyers. And that leads me to another mentor. When you look back on your life and you're like, man, I was so fortunate. Howard was a mentor who hadn't reached his pinnacle yet, but he was developing. And so he was on the rise. And my office was right next to John Floyd, who is the, you know, has the largest home building company in the state now called Old South, but that was in the early stages of Old South. Mm -hmm. And he would spend, he started as a realtor and partnered and had this. So he would spend the first part of the morning to lunch at Old South. Then the second half of the day, he would come, because he listed all his own homes at that time, he would come to um, to, to Snow and Wall Realtors at the time. And my office was right next door to him. And I would just pepper him with questions. And one day he put me in the car. He goes, let me show you how to sell a house. And he and he and they did a lot of starter homes. And and he took me out of subdivision, probably 79.9, you know, out, wow. it's called Salem, Salem Close, 1,200 square foot homes. He said, all right, here's what you do. He said, you up. Uh, and this was kind of in the summer months. He said, drive on out here in the evenings. You're always going to find people driving around. And if you want to put your signs out here, put them out here. I don't care. I'm going to get the listing. I don't care if I sell these houses. To, I mean, I don't want to be the buyer agent. Right. He says, so put your signs. You'll get some sign calls. And then come out here on the weekends. And he said, just slow drive it. And you're going to see somebody looking and just say, hey, would you like to see one of these homes? And let them in. And then don't say a whole lot. And then when they come out, say, what do you think? And they're going to say, man, they're whatever. That's pretty cool. And then you ask them, where do you live now? And they'll say, Summer Lake Apartments. And then you'll say, how much is your rent? And they'll say, $525. And then you're going to take out this Texas instrument and you're going to, a little calculator, and you go, you could have one of these homes on any of these lots and your payment is going to be 600 bucks. How does that sound? And they're going to say, really? And then you're going to say, do you have any money to put down? And they're going to say, well, I got blah, blah, blah. And you're going to say, do you mind seeding and strong? It's easy. No, do you mind painting? It's easy. And it ain't easy, but they never figured that out till they got in the middle of it. And I can get you in for 1500 if you don't mind doing a little sweat equity. And that was kind of the one class of buyer that I wasn't intimidated by. Yeah. yeah. So I went out there, man, and I just did it. And that was probably 90% of my sales that year. So at this point, were you kind of thinking, well, my uncle is doing this development. I have John mm -hmm. Floyd next to me that's doing some building. Were you thinking about that being the future or were you just grinding out like I was I've just grinding? A, I've got I didn't have a big enough belief system at that point. At that point, I was just like, man, I remember my goal. Okay, if I can just make 5000 a month, then I remember when it went to 10000 a month. 
So it was totally just about selling homes. Then as I started having more success, I say maybe year three or four, I was like, hmm, this development thing looks pretty smart. And because I, I was around these guys. Right. You know, and it didn't. It didn't How much did that impact your belief system? Huge. Huge. It goes back to you're the average of the five people you're around the most. So just by being around those guys and starting to understand it and realize, you know what? These are good dudes and they're smart, but they're really not like smarter than me. Right. You know what I mean? And it just gave me comfort. And I remember going to John one day and saying, man, I'd really, and I went to Howard and I'd say, hey, I'd really like to get into a development. How do I need to do that? You know, and, and John said, and you talk about zero down. Okay. John said, I'll tell you what, if you find a good piece of property that I seem that I think we can make money on developing, you'll, you'll get in the deal with zero down because I'll put you in the deal, you know, for 20% or something like that. And Howard was similar. So that's kind of how I got into it, you know, and our first development was actually, I did have a little money to put, and both of them said, save up some money. I said, save up money, you know, and I did. And I saved up, a, I think it was like 200,000 bucks. And Howard and I, that was our first deal we got into was 200,000 bucks. It was Harvest, Harvest Grove subdivision, Harvest Woods. And that was probably like 02, 01, 02. And literally we just got, it was 300, 400 lots, 350 lot subdivision. We just honestly got finished with it about two years ago. Uh, because now we drug it through the recession where right. we didn't really do much, but that was my first, my first foray into that. And how old were you at this time? Mid so O2, I was, uh, 33, maybe 33. 30. Yeah. It's about, I've been in business about eight, nine years and, um, got a taste of it. And, and what, what I, what I realized is by controlling the dirt, then I could control the builders yeah. and I would have exclusive listings. And so it really created product and people are really, and when you have listings, they attract potential buyers, they create buyer leads. So when you had that, and especially new construction, because everybody loves going through new construction because they can, on an open house, they got new construction. They might get to go through four homes instead of just going to one. So that's where we met a lot of buyers. And maybe we sold them something in the subdivision. Maybe we didn't, but we, that's where we met them. Right. Hey, and then we just said, you know, what do you look, and then try to solve their problem. Just so, try to help them. Yeah. So it, it integrates both, both right. ways. So that, that was a beautiful thing. So let's talk about that deal. So, I mean, th you said three, 400 houses. That's a big development. Yeah, it is. And that's a big development for mm -hmm. your first one. So like, yeah. where did you find? I didn't have deal? no sense to know how big that was. <laughs> I really did. Well, how did you find the deal and, and analyze it and, and say, okay, this is. That, this that's is an interesting first, story. First that one. deal was honestly, my grandparents had passed away. Okay. This was a part of their farm that the heirs, which was my dad, brother four siblings were selling i actually had it listed with my father believe it or not i think we had it listed for like ten thousand an acre wow. and this but that was but a lot of money back then it was and no takers no takers it'd been on market like six months howard had looked at it as obviously he was probably saying hey it's be a great place to development but that kind of put him in a tough spot sure because this is a you know he didn't want those He's married to one of the heirs. He didn't want them thinking, you know, he's trying to take advantage, blah, blah, blah. So I went to Howard and said, why don't we develop this? You're a developer. This is a great piece of property. He said, 
John, I would love to develop it, but you need to go talk to all the heirs and make sure, you know, they're good with it. And I did. And we, I think we paid like 7,500 an acre or something like that. And they were all fine with it. It's like, fine. Yeah. No, we, we just soon you do it than anybody. And that's how I got in my first one. It was a piece of property I had listed for the family and we weren't selling it. And I looked at Howard and said, you want, you know, and, and he's, and that, that was the first one. And the second one was one that like John Floyd said, I found it and I got in it with no money down. Now, what I've learned since then, uh, that recession taught us a lot of good lessons. They don't really tell you this, the bankers, when you sign up. If this thing goes south, we're probably going to come back and do this thing called a capital call. <laughs> yeah. That never, you know, and, and so when 08 hit, I was carrying three subdivisions. I was partners in all of them, thank God, because there's no way I could have made it through without sharing the risk. But what stunk about that was I had banks, you know, they reappraise those things every year. And all, all of a sudden, the land and the development that was worth $3 million this year, next year, when the recession hit, and you're not selling any lots, because when it hits, you don't sell lots. Now it's $1.8, and we need you guys to make up the shortfall, you know, in the and they call it a capital call. And I was like, well, I have a little money saved up, but if I give you this money, now I don't have money to pay you interest. So it was really scary. Scary, scary time. So and, let's go into that. Um, so you have three subdivisions going at this point. Mm-hmm. Things are going well. Mm-hmm. You have, how, how many houses are you selling per year at this point? In 06, I think we did, 06, 07, we did like around, we we're around 350. Okay. So I had this team now, we're right. rocking and rolling, and 08 hits. Okay. At what point do you realize, wait, this is not right. There's a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Yeah. I think I started not- noticing it mid-08, but obviously by the end of 08, when the bailout, I mean, I can. Re- I opened my own company October 1, 2008. I was in Washington, D.C. on my kids' field trip, coming back in to my new office that I opened, that we built. We started in 07, was ready. We're moving in October 1, 08. And I remember being in D.C., watching people walk around, don't bail out the government, you know, it was all those protesters. And I remember going, Ooh, boy, I really picked a good time to open an office. And literally when I got back, I mean, it's like the phones just cut off. I mean, nobody was calling internet's still pretty popular, but we still would get a lot of calls back then. Mm-hmm. Now everything's more internet driven, but you know, it's just like it shut off. And that's when I was like, man, this could be serious. Now, Denial was kind of like in that movie, The Big Short, where mm-hmm. he, they're driving around with that realtor, like, oh, we're just in a little gully. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. we thought, oh, yeah, it's just going to be a year. It's relative, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. We're like, hey, it's this going, you know, and then you're in 09, and then you're in 010, and then the bottom for us, and I think nationally was 11. The end of 11 was the bottom. And man, it was just robbing Peter to pay Paul, man, and just a lot of sleepless nights. I tell people I didn't talk to a bankruptcy attorney once. I mean, I had that dude on speed dial because I just wasn't sure. Yeah. And there's some certain things that happened. I won't go into a lot of detail that, man, just kind of came out of nowhere. If that hadn't happened, bankruptcy. And if this hadn't happened in 2010, like I sold this building that I wasn't even trying to sell because I didn't think I could sell it. Somebody just called me. If that hadn't happened, bankruptcy. And still, I think when we got to, around if it had gone one more year bankruptcy because i was just down to nothing you know i'd exhausted 
all my savings. I had exhausted all my lines of credit pretty much. And man, I was just, and then it started turning. And and we were able to get the HUD contract. We were able to get things to keep it afloat. Right. But what was really killing me, when I go back and look at those years in the brokerage business, we made decent money. Like you would say, well, why were you about to go broke? The problem was everything I was making, I was basically giving to the banks for these developments that were struggling. And that was the problem is I had all this debt service. So I learned, I said, I'm not going to let that happen again. And actually, I missed some opportunities probably in 15, 16, 17, because I still had that, you know. But I said, if I'm going to take these development opportunities, if I'm going to get back in this game, I'm really going to manage my risk better. And I'm going to make sure that I'm in a position, uh, if it's a, I I don't want to do any 10-year deals. I didn't want to do any 300-lot deals. I want to do things I can get in and get out in a year or year and a half, like some 40-lot things, some 50-lot things, things like that. And if I do go into anything bigger, I'm definitely going in it with the right partners. John Floyd was one of my partners in one of those developments. And what happened, because he's a big home builder, he went ahead and kept building. And he wasn't making much money on these houses, but he kept the lots being absorbed. So that was one development the banks left us alone on. So I was like, if I do a bigger development, I want to be in it with somebody like John, who we've got kind of a plan. It's good to be in developments that where the people bring things to the table. And what he brings to the table is this building machine that could build through this. So right now I'm in a couple of developments. They're all small, like I just mentioned. But the one that's a little bit bigger, he's one of my partners. Yeah. Because I know he can build his way through it. Yeah. So let's talk about bankers. Mm -hmm. I don't have bank money in our business. Yeah. Good for you. And the reason for that is... um, Whenever I was selling real estate and to talk about age, I was I was 18 when I got my real estate license. That's and, crazy. And this was in 05. And so I would come into the office. I was a Keller Williams agent with right. Neil Patterson. Right. And uh, I would come into the office and sometimes there would be a buyer and, you know, I would do the floor time thing and there would be a buyer or a seller come in and they would put me in front of them and they'd say, shake my hand. And I'd say, hey, I'm Brad. And and they said, hey, hey, great to meet you, Brad. Is your father here? <laughs> you know? And it's tough to recover from that. Yeah. You know, and that was even in 05. Yeah. Similar story. I, I, I found that at 18 years old, my peer group weren't really buying and selling houses. Right. Uh, I did. It took me five months to get my first deal. I had an $1,800 sure. check. And, but it gave it me felt some, good, though, some confidence. To, Do you remember to, the house? Yeah. It was 108 Arnold Lane. Isn't that funny? I yeah. remember my, I used to remember the address, but it was Rose Avenue, 535. Yeah. You don't forget your first. Right, right. <laughs> so I, I was a group leader at World Outreach Church, right. the college group. Right. And one of the, the heads over the college group was a builder developer. Mm-hmm. And every week he would say, Brad, you, you got your first deal yet? You got your first deal yet? No, no, mm-hmm. no. But I was finally able to say yes in December. Right. And he said, well, that's great. I want you to to start with me in January. I've got a, a new section of my subdivision. I'm building model home, kind of similar mm-hmm. to what you were talking about mm-hmm. with John Floyd. You will have some buyer traffic. You sit there, sure. strictly commission-based. And I right. was like, well, that'll be good. I'll learn development. Sure. And over time, I thought, you know, I, I think I want to develop. I've since learned I don't think I do. Right, right, right. But everything was great. You know, he would have parties. The bankers would be there. I'd meet some of these people. Mm-hmm. Mid-South Bank was a big player in that. And I remember in 2008, I remember the builder developer that I worked for one time saying, you know, the, the bankers are working this weekend. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. 
So he said, bankers don't work on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I knew that there was a problem. Countrywide hit. I remember the Countrywide, the main mortgage person for Countrywide at the time was sending out an email. We're fine. We're fine. Mm-hmm. We have liquidity. Mm-hmm. We had closings that were happening that five, six, seven days later, there's still no wire. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember that mm-hmm. with Countrywide. Yeah. Bank of America came in and bought them out. Mm-hmm. But what all that to say, I don't deal with banks because... They cash called my builder developer, even mm-hmm. though he never missed a loan mm-hmm. payment. And he was actually going in because he was handy and doing some of the work himself mm-hmm. on the houses to pay himself as a sub. So he had adequate sure. cash. Yeah. They, they didn't like that. No. Even though the work was there, mm-hmm. the collateral was there, they didn't want him to do that. And they cash called him to the point that he couldn't pay it. And, sure. And it broke him. Right. And I thought about that. It's like, why would a bank call a performing loan mm-hmm. if their collateral position is going to get worse once there's no payments. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it never made sense to me. And you know, he told me one time. He said, "Brad, you're the banks are your best friend when they want you to take the cash, and they're your mm-hmm. worst enemy when they want it back." Yeah. So how do you so feel? Truth to that. How do you feel about banks going through this? And what, how do you feel about banks? And can you share the story where you know you get a call or? or or one of your yeah. partners gets a call from the bank, and and what happens? They're, they just call you, yeah. say, "Hey, yeah. John, bring us yeah. one point two million. Well, you know, they usually want a meeting. They, they want, want a meeting. meeting, and uh, but how do I feel about banks? It made me very, very callous to them. Like, do I need banks? Yes. Could I've gotten to where I've gotten without banks? No. Maybe I could have, but I mean, in my particular situation, I need them. But when I learned how they operate, it didn't give me, like, I don't have loyalty to banks anymore. I don't. I'm not a ruthless guy. I, I'm kind of a win-win guy yeah. in negotiating. But with banks, I'm like, I, I had a little rental house closed the other day, and I get there, and she, you know, the, the banker's charging me a point. I said, I'm not paying a point. Back in the day, I never would have said that. Like, I would have just kind of gone along, and, you know, I'll need them later. We got a relationship. And I realized they didn't care about me back then. And I will say this, the local bankers, like when we had that meeting, okay, so what do they do? They call you and they go, I can remember Creekspin, particular meeting with a bank here in town. It was me and my two partners, and they're both older than me. And they both had a lot of business with this particular bank in other areas. I kind of had this one deal with this bank. So I was pushing, let's play hardball and see what happens. I mean, we can always give them the money. But so they had this meeting. And what's funny, when they have those meetings where you're like dealing with one banker early when you're doing the deal, right? When you have those meetings, it's almost like you're dealing with a team of them because they want to hold hands when they have to give you miserable news. And I'll say this to their credit they were just doing what they were told from the high brass. Yeah. But, and they didn't like it and they were uncomfortable. And they basically, you know, they, they stutter around or they did my case. Well, here's this, that, and the other. We all knew what was about to come, and, and you know we reappraised it, and and what 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 happened, and I didn't understand. Like you're talking about your fellow that you were dealing with, the builder developer, is a lot of these banks that we were dealing with around here were regional banks, and the way the regional bank competes with the Bank of Americas and stuff is they do a lot of riskier real estate stuff. That's how they make money. Well, what happened was is like your builder developer, we're making payments like clockwork, but a lot of others weren't. So these banks get downgraded to having too much underperforming paper. Mm -hmm. And then they bring in these examiners and they're treated differently. 
And then they just start going for the money wherever they can get it. It's kind of like our government. We pay for the people that don't do their part. And in that case, we were kind of being penalized for all the bad loans they had written and people that weren't paying them. But it doesn't matter. They still got to try to make it all work and keep it going and keep their stock and just from the bank going under. So, you know, they're coming at us. And uh, I never will forget this. One of my partners was a an attorney, and he was a great attorney, a, a litigator, and just smooth as silk, just a really good dude. And he was sitting there listening to these bankers, and they were fumbling around, okay, bottom line, you guys got to bring 300000 or something. And he sat there, and he and I'm, I'm over there just like, you know, I'm like the worst <laughs> poker player. I'm just disgusted, you know, wearing my feelings and everything on my no poker face. Yeah. He, you know, he's quite a bit older, and he's been in the courtroom, and he's sitting there, man, he always dressed very nice. And he was just sitting there smiling and just very kind of like this, listening. And he said, uh, you know, I hear you guys telling me this. And he goes, but just yesterday, just yesterday, I was at your bank where my investments are. They had an investment arm of their bank and had all his retirement funds with this particular guy in their bank. It was over a million bucks. And he said, I was down there meeting with uh, with Charlie yesterday, you know, doing our annual meeting. And this is when stock, this is when the, you know, the Dow just went 60%. I mean, it just dropped 40%. Yeah. Right. And I could tell old Charlie was squirming a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't want to have this meeting. Right. Because he's basically telling me a million bucks is 600. And I looked at Charlie and I said, you know, Charlie, I know this isn't your fault. It's the market. And, you know, Charlie, it's going to be okay. I don't need this money tomorrow. I need it when I'm whatever, 65 years old. And I still believe in you. And we're going to be fine. And I could tell the weight just lifted off Charlie's shoulders. Now he's telling this to these bankers. Yeah. And this is in his their own bank. He said, What I did is I showed Charlie some grace. But I come to this side of the street <laughs> and I'm not feeling a lot of grace. And I thought, man, this is awesome. This is awesome, man. This guy's awesome. That's why he's the best attorney, you know. I was like poking my other partner around. Well, this guy's awesome. It didn't help. (laughs) We still had to cough up the money. But uh, it just, you know, I guess if I didn't have the money, I was always blessed by God. In those certain situations, I somehow came up with the money. But in some cases, I might not have had it. And I guess at that point, that's when the the game begins and to see if they're really going to call the notes or not. And I would, you know, I was talking to these other developers and stuff, and everybody had a different story. Uh, The bigger banks seemed like they came in quicker. And went after the money and got what they could get because they kind of knew the deal. But some banks were more reasonable. They would try to do a workout. And what I did realize, what I think Trump always would write about, you know, I think in, in some of his books, especially the first ones, you know, when you owe a bank a couple million bucks, they call that foreclosure. But when you owe a bank, depending on the size of the bank, sure. But if you owe maybe one of these regional banks 10 million bucks, all of a sudden, hey, Brad. Let's figure out how we're going to work this. You're a partner. So it's almost like you're a partner. You're more, you're, you're better off owing them more. Yeah. And then you're partners. I've seen that before. And they call that a workout. Yeah. I talked to a a builder and and he kind of went through this. He actually gave some keys back and signed a a promissory note for the difference Mm -hmm. on some spec houses. And and now he's doing very, very well. Yeah. I think a good chunk of that is he made it right. But uh, in came a a big builder developer that we both know that we're Mm -hmm. not going to mention, but probably owed 
20, 30, $40 million mm -hmm. at the same bank. You know, it's like, well, if they call him and call his loans, mm -hmm. then they're going to have to break the bank. Right. Like, he's too big to fail in right. a local bank. Yeah, you're right. And, and that's a really interesting scenario. Was there any point in the middle of this that you thought, God, this just didn't worth it? I should have just stayed in insurance or something. <laughs> a lot. I did a lot. I, I thought about that. But you know, Brad, what I went back to, and uh, at a certain point, you know, I just have to get on my knees every morning. And, and really, God was awesome. And at a certain point, you just give it to him, and I do everything I do. But, you know, at a certain point, even though I thought I was being treated unfairly, I got, and I got in victim land a little while. Okay. But at the end of the day, I had to say, you know what? I did sign the note. Mm -hmm. I did that. Because a lot of builder developers play the game. Okay, take it back. Whatever, yeah. I don't care. You know, and we'll bankrupt the LLC. And, and I, it would have been easier, honestly. I could have come out a lot quicker if I had just bankrupted, okay, and played that game. But I did sign the note. And that's what God kept telling me. He's like, John, you did sign the obligation. Maybe you didn't understand it. Maybe you need to read things. Maybe you need to have more life experiences, but you did sign it. And if you're a man of God, you're a man of character, you got to do everything in your power to honor it. And I did. And he got me through it. I never had to file. And uh, But if I could have wiped the slate clean on those developments, my company wouldn't have gone under. I mean, I wasn't selling widgets where, okay, I got closed the factory. Right. I was brokering a product. I was still in business. I would have just bankrupted my LLCs and those and, wiped it to zero and I would have figured out a way to keep my house. And you know what I mean? I could have got, it would have got me to zero and then I'm still selling and it would have been easier, honestly. Yeah. But I wouldn't have gone as much debt and paid as much interest and all that, but it wouldn't have been right. It wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been honorable. And I'd like to say that get, going through that, that the bankers, and I, I think in certain respect, some of them do, treat me nicer because yeah. they were like, dude, you did it. But at the end of the day, the ones I'm dealing with, the local, they don't make the call. That's what I realized. It doesn't matter what this guy says to me. It doesn't matter if he loves me. It doesn't matter if he's my brother. He's getting his direction from the brass, top brass, and it doesn't matter. He hates giving me this news. Yeah. He hated those guys in that room that day. They were good fellas. And they didn't want to be in there and they didn't want to be telling us that because we were all pretty good customers of that bank. Really, my two partners were really good customers of that bank. And, um, you know, so it's just one of those things you just learn from it. Yeah. But I watched so many people in our business, Brad, and you probably did too, like realtors that were really doing pretty good. And I remember calling a couple of them during this time and we're trying to do a deal and they'd be like, look, I can't talk until 12 o'clock. And I was like, really? What's up? You can continue and educate. No, I'm over here at Steinmark working. Yeah. You know, they had kind of checked out. It's easy as heck to quit. And a lot of people did quit. Maybe they didn't retire their license, so to speak, because you can keep your license for not much money, but they quit. Yeah. And I just, I didn't quit. I just kept going. And here's the beauty of it. And I had to figure out a way to go to my team every day and say, guys, we got to keep fighting. We got to do this. Here's the market. Here's what they're giving us. Here's who we need to be calling. Here's what we're doing. And, and what happened when we, when this thing turned around, I was, my team was still built. I didn't have to lay off people. I, we were ready to rock and roll. And 
we were able to kind of flourish when this thing turned around because I was I was still set up ready to go, where a lot of other people weren't. My biggest, my best market share in this market was during those uh, during those years. I had, I remember at one point, I had five percent of every sale. I've never had that number, <laughs> you know, because everybody quit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it just made us stronger coming out of it. To say when you have adversity in your life, and I look back on that time, Brad, and I and I tell people this: I don't want to go through it again. I really don't. Yeah. Uh, and I really don't wish it on anybody. But probably the best thing ever happened to me because I became a better man. I became a better Christian man. I became a better dad. I had more compassion for people. Um, I kind of got on my high horse. Okay. You know, I'd ridden 15 years where my life had gotten better every year. Yeah. Kind of started thinking I was smart. And really realized I was riding a pretty good market. And it just, I can't tell you how many listings I went to, Brad. And I knew going, I bet 500 over those five years, where I knew going to that listing, they can't sell this house. They're underwater. But I still went because it was almost like a ministry. When you're sitting there looking at a man and he's saying, John, I can't, I can't keep, I've lost my job. I can't. Yeah, make this payment. We need to sell, and I'd look at them at a house they bought last year for three hundred. That's now worth two seventy, and I would say, "Do you have fifty thousand yeah. to bring to the table?" And they look at me, "No." And then I would say, "Well, are you late yet?" Because if they were, here's the sad part: if they were late, I could probably short sell it for them. You know, yeah. but you hate to tell somebody not to make the pain. I said, if you're late, but if they were, you know, and I mean, and I remember just looking at them where they looked defeated and, and just saying, man, look, man, I know what you're going through. I'm going through it. You're going to be okay. Let's figure out, can we rent it? Can we, let's figure out what we can do here. Some of those short sales we worked out for people. I mean, we're like a ministry, dude. They were so thankful not to have a foreclosure. Yeah. They were so thankful uh, unfortunately, a lot of people waited till it was too late. Like yeah, they waited till, you know, you go out there and they go, man, foreclosure sales next Tuesday. And you're like, man, I, there's not much I can probably do. But I look back on that, man. It made me a better person, made me a better everything. So yeah. that, that, that's deep that you can look at the, um, the bright side of things. Cause I know that was a tough time. I mean, one thing, I mean, you had a lot of people looking up to you and I mean, certainly all over the place, but definitely in this local market mm -hmm. and you had a team and then you're going to meet with sellers. I mean, how do you lead people whenever you don't feel much better than they do? It sounds and, like in my case, man, it was, it was honestly God just getting on my knees every morning, spending time in my office every morning. I had like a routine, man. I would get in there about, let's say I'd work out, go straight to the office. Cause I had a shower there. I wouldn't even shower yet. I would sit down. I would do my devotion. And then I would just spend time with God and just, you know, help me, help me. Give me the right words to say today. Mm. And I couldn't do it alone, man. I could not do it alone. I can remember going, I can remember, this is the pit of despair we're in. I remember going to to John, who was the largest home builder at the time. And he he's going through the same thing I'm going through. There's just more zeros involved. Right. And uh, banks are on him, this, that, and the other. And he's, you know, going through a lot of personal stuff too. Yeah. And... I remember going to him like maybe in 10 or 11 and like, John, is this the new normal? I mean, is this ever going to change? And he looked at me, he goes, are people still having sex? And I go, I think so. 
He goes, well, they're going to have babies and they're going to have to have a place to live. I mean, we had to take it down to the most common denominator to go, it is going to come back. Yeah. Because we got to have houses for people. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that kind of bailed us out of that quicker than maybe it would have gone was the institutional buyers coming in, the hedge funds. Yep. They had never been in residential. Well, they had been in residential, like owning apartments and things like that. And they obviously had been in office and commercial, but they had they had never been in single family. And this allowed them an opportunity to come in and buy a bunch of these homes that were just, we had to absorb them. And they bought those. And um, I was just listening to a guy the other day about that and how they got into it. And it, they always kind of had wanted to be into it, but it just wasn't scalable. You know, right. like apartment complex is very scalable. But with the with the advent at that time of iPhones and clouds, they were able to get into that. And that really that really helped us, I think, come out of it quicker. Well, that makes sense. And I remember back then, and I'm sure you will too, there was always a talk about there's this shadow inventory of foreclosures. You know, it's like we had foreclosures all over the place, but they were saying, oh, second wave's coming, second wave's coming. It never came. Yeah. And I think that maybe the institutional buyers were certainly a big part of that. At some point, things began to get better. At what point did you realize like, hey, this is different? Oh, by the way, learning from what I went through, I was watching the numbers every month. We were trending. We were so probably in 12, I said, guess what? This January is better than last January. Not much. And every month it started trickling up. I said, cool, we're seeing a pattern here. How did that feel at the time? It felt you saw good. three months. It of felt trend. good. I mean, we were still, there were still issues, but I'd say 13. I said, okay, it's starting to look very positive, but it was still slow. You know, obviously 13 was better than 12. 14 was better than 13, 15. So 13 is when I started, I think, breathing mm. like, cool. Oh, we're actually, hey, we actually sold a couple lots to builders this week, you know, wow. yeah, yeah. stuff like that. And, uh, but it was just, it was just slow. Here's something else I noticed during that time, Brad, is we have a huge subdivision in our area called Evergreen Farms, thousands of houses, it's kind of starter home type product. Any time during that period, you and I could have gone to Evergreen Farms for five years and bought a house any day of that, any day during that five year period for probably somewhere around a hundred to 115,000. Those houses today, we sold one the other day for 300000 Yeah, to a hedge fund, 1,200 square feet. If we had bought one of the, if we had bought 20 of those houses, okay, we would have spent about $2 million bucks, or we would have probably, you know, whatever. All those houses today would be worth, and that's only what, 10 years ago. Yeah. All those houses today have not just doubled, they've probably gone up hundred, almost 150%. There was so much opportunity there. Yeah. I couldn't do anything. So I said, this next time when there's some type of correction, there's opportunity. I want to be in position to take advantage of it because there were guys sitting around here with cash that did take advantage of it. The hedge funds who had tons of cash took advantage of it. And it, it, it taught me that the guys that can take advantage, people can take advantage back to Warren Buffett, buy the value, man. You can skyrocket your returns, you know? Oh, yeah. So I learned a lot about that. So when this hits, 
I've always wanted. So during these last five, 10 years, I'm like, man, save cash, get, have cash, have cash, have cash. Cause I'm gonna tell you something. When times are tough, the bank don't care about how much you're worth. They care about one item, one line on your financial statement, one cash. They could care less. You own 50 rental properties with all this equity, blah, blah, blah. They don't care. Yeah. They, how much cash this guy got? That's how we're going to determine if he's worth, worth anything. And that was a hard lesson to learn, but I learned it, hopefully. <laughs> so I've been trying to save cash. And if I do have cash, I've also know something about myself. If I've got cash, I try to keep it in things like real estate. Like, I, cause if I have a ton of it, I want it working for me in a, in a smart way, but I don't want to not have it, but I want it into short term solutions that I can kind of liquefy pretty quick, but I'm making a return. I don't, but, but I also know enough about myself. If I got too much, I'll go buy dumb things like a house in Florida or a lake house and blah, blah, blah. So I gotta, I gotta kind of know my me, understand me and be self-aware that way. So, but anyway, I know we've probably carried on too long, but no, th- this is I've really enjoyed great. it. Yeah, it's been great. So, I mean, last question. You've mm-hmm. done short-term rentals, long-term mm-hmm. rentals, commercial buildings, land development. What's your favorite asset class and why? I love long-term rentals because when I look at my returns, you know, in my 401k or IRA or whatever, compared to what I have made leveraging real estate, like just three-bedroom two-bath house, it blows that out of the water because of leverage. And I, John Floyd said this to me early on, and he said, owning rental property is the one way a middle-class American can become very, very wealthy. If he just has enough discipline to save enough money to buy a rental house every year, every couple years, just buy a rental house, you put down a small amount of money to leverage an asset somebody else is going to pay off for you. And it's so simple. It's not sexy, but it just works. I remember I bought my first rental house early on. And I remember like in five years, I was doing my financial statement. And I was like, wow, that house is worth this. Mm-hmm. And I only owe this. I've got 150000 equity in this booger. Wow. And all the while, somebody else is paying this down for me. And you get the little depreciation and things like that. But I just thought, you know, that just makes a lot of it's just common sense, you know. And you listen to bigger pockets and they pretty much follow that kind of same philosophy. Flipping's fun, but flipping money is usually like money, it's now, you know. Right. And and here's something else I love about owning real property. These tax laws could change. Yeah. For sure. And but, will, but yeah. But but Brad, if I die tomorrow and I've got these 20 rental houses and or I've 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 got all this and I've 1031 them, I've never really paid taxes on them on the gains. Then I die tomorrow and my kids get these houses. The cost basis is based on what they're worth today. So if they want to sell them all, there's no tax implication, you know, for the most part, unless right. you know I've got this crazy. Right. right. So I was just like, man. Where else can you do that? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's all kinds of little things that, you know, this and that, but it's just like when I looked at my return from this compared to what I was getting in the stock market, it blew it out of the water. And I'm not dogging stocks. I mean, diversification is good, 
But what I realized pretty early on, these guys and these that are calling on you to do your IRAs and stuff, you know, they're showing these charts and they're talking about 10% returns and stuff like this. I've never gotten them. Maybe you have in the well, stock. No, and I it's just like I don't know how they do their fees, but it always seems like it's maybe six or seven over time. Maybe. Yeah, I've never understood someone making less than than I do telling me how to run cash. Yeah, and that's what I've always had trouble with. I I've got real estate and notes, and and that's yeah. really that's what I know. Yeah, you know, and so I, I and, and that's another that. thing. I learned early on. I was trying to buy stock. I was in my twenties. Yeah, and I kept buying the stock called WorldCom. And I didn't have that much money, but it kept going down. And my stockbroker kept saying, dude, let's keep buying it. Cost dollar average. Right, right. Well, the company was lying. And guess what? It went to zero and it's no more. And a couple of those guys are in prison. Well, that rental house, I can drive by it. Oh, it's still there. <laughs> you know, it's what I know. You know what I'm saying? Right. And you're crazy not to tap into what you know. And do I have all my eggs in one basket? Kind of. Because I know somebody's always going to have a place to live. That's right. And maybe I don't get the rent for it that I get today, but I'll rent it for something. Yeah. And I just feel comfortable with that, you know? So I really love rental property, even though it's a very, what I do daily, development's fun, but it's risky. I love creating. I've kind of gotten into the short-term rental and I kind of like it, but I'm a little scared of it. Like laws can change that real quick. Sure. Yeah. Murfreesboro can come in one day and say, no more of that. You know, and then you're like, oh, and we've already found some HOAs have come in and, and changed their HOAs saying, no, nah, we don't want that. So it's a little bit more risky, but I like the return. I think that's the way America's starting to travel because people go, you own some in Nashville. We understand that. People are coming to Nashville. Hey, you're going to have a right, good time. Right. But in Murfreesboro, why are people doing them in Mar I said, well, dude, they come in for weddings. They come in for reunions. They come in for dog shows. They come in for soccer tournaments. It's just the way people are traveling now. So I've kind of, I've kind of enjoyed that. I'm getting a better return than I would if I was traditionally renting it. So I kind of like that, but I'm kind of looking at that as, you know, it's a little riskier, you know, because who knows what's going to happen with it. Yeah. I thought that was the last question, but I have one more. So mm -hmm. you've been in for 28 years. Mm -hmm. What do you hope to see or hope to accomplish the next 10? Man, I just, I'm at that age. I'm 52. So it's kind of like, I don't want to take crazy chances. I want to kind of secure what I have and build on the rental property keep my company growing, but I'm not in a risk-taking. My risk is I'm very calculated risk management. It's kind of like uh, gambling. You know, when I was young, in my 20s, I, I might go to Vegas or somewhere and, boy, I'd fire at them. Because guess what? I ain't have nothing. <laughs> Who cares? Right, right. But now if I go to Vegas, I'm over there playing like a little tightest guy in the world because it's so hard to ever get any, you know, you realize all the work you put into it. I just don't want to give it away. So I'm just trying to set myself up to passive income to me is, is one of the most beautiful things. The more I've read, people don't get wealthy without it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You've got to have income working for you that doesn't require your time and attention, money while you sleep. And it took me a second to kind of figure that out. But once you figure that out, the younger you are that you can do the biggest. And I, I try not to have a lot of regrets because I think you learn from everything. But the biggest regrets I have is selling some things I rental properties I had out of frustration or, hey, I'm going to sell this so I can go buy a boat or something stupid. You know, I wish I'd never sold a the only rental properties I was, uh, ever sold. I the only reason I would sell them put them at 1031. I wish I'd kept all that stuff. Yeah. Because you see what time does to that investment. And it's just, 
A bank, if you and I go to a bank tomorrow and we got the best tip on the stock, your brother-in-law is the CEO of some company and he's like, hey guys, buy it. And we go to the bank and we say, hey man, let's borrow a hundred grand. We'll have it back to you by Thursday after this thing triples. He's going to look at us like we're crazy. Yeah. But if we go in with a little rental house and got 20% to put down, he's like, come on in here, boys. Let's buy, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. That makes sense, man. John, appreciate you being with Thanks, us. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, Enjoyed it. Good. I'm good. proud of you, man. Well, thank you. Thank You've you. done a great job. But well, it's been it's been fun and growing a team and, and everything. And, you know, it, it's work. I'm in awe of what this guy does because it's not what I do, but it is what I do. It's building a team, having system processes, constantly evolving and changing with things. And it's just fat. I mean, you're young, dude. You're so young. And you've done so well, and I'm proud of that. Thanks. You figured things out at a young age, which is— I had good mentors, I, I, had, I, had to, I always tell people I had to take not one bloody nose, but usually I had to take two or three. And then I was like, okay, I won't <laughs> do that again. You seem to kind of— Well, I, I have been good at learning from other people's mistakes, like why we don't borrow back money, you know? And I'm, I'm kind of with you. Like, are we missing opportunity because of that? Yes. But the, the people that fund the business, they don't want their cash back right. under any circumstance. Mm-hmm. And so I just feel like we're more stable, sure. you know, and we can get money if we need it. So there's always opportunities you're going to miss. Yeah. But there's always opportunities that could blow you up. Yeah. You know, right. so you just, you're never going to hit it perfect. Yeah. That's it. Thanks, man. <laughs>